To be or not to be, that is the question. For nearly 300 years, women have claimed the right to play Hamlet on the professional stage. When the role is played by a woman, Hamlet's famous soliloquy becomes a passionate plea for freedom and self-definition. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely? In this episode of the podcast, we'll look back over three centuries to see how women playing Hamlet helped inspire a worldwide political movement and see how to be or not to be became a powerful slogan for equality and justice. Or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. In recent years, Maxine Peake, Michelle Terry and Ruth Negger have all played Hamlet to great critical acclaim in Britain alone. As an actor, it's by far the biggest relationship I've had with an audience. This is Nicole Cooper. She's currently shortlisted for the Critics Award for Theatre in Scotland for her performance as Hamlet. The lines that you're saying are incredibly human and about humanity. And the gift of that play and of that part is being able to connect to an audience with those lines. There is something about that writing that resonates. Nicole is just the very latest in a very long and distinguished stage tradition. A tradition traced by Professor Tony Howard, who's written a fascinating book on the history of women playing Hamlet. The female Hamlet were all taking one step into the unknown. There's an instant ability to see how radical a female Hamlet is. I spent a long time putting a book together when I realised that there were over 200 female Hamlets who were interesting enough to be put on record. In 1741, it's the very first female Hamlet on record, um, an actress called Fanny Furnival, who was very distinguished and very much admired, nonetheless found that she couldn't get the good parts um, in London. And so she and her husband moved to Dublin where they were able to sort of take command and do things that weren't possible in the metropolis. Top of the list was her playing Hamlet. And what we do know, which is what counts, is that it was very successful and that she repeated it in other parts of Ireland. She was an actress who trained actors, took them under her wing, as it were. Um, And one person who she took under her wing was a young actor called Roger Kemble. Why that's important is because his daughter, Sarah, became Sarah Siddons. And she's the first female Hamlet who people know about, really, because she was the most extraordinary, um, powerful symbol of what women could achieve in the theatre in the 18th century. She was the first woman to establish the fact that being a performer on stage could give you dignity. She was seen as a symbol of the arts. Many 18th century actors were satirised for declaiming to be or not to be as high melodrama but Sarah Siddons is thought to have given a more delicate, more nuanced reading. She thought it through. It wasn't acted so much as explored. And that really became a kind of watchword for how good female Hamlets could be. For for many women, the road into Hamlet has been through exploring the isolation of the individual unconsciousness. It's been about, about vulnerability, about the dream and the fear of it. For many other performers, it's been about getting out there, taking control, being yourself, and challenging so many things. When you get to to be or not to be, 
it can be about suicide. If you're a woman, it's as much to, uh, uh, a case of to be human, to be yourself, or accepting injustice, and that's the calamity that makes so long life. The first Hamlet on film was a woman, the famous Victorian actress Sarah Bernhardt, and it's thought the first Hamlet to be broadcast on radio was also a woman, Eve Dunn. Women going right back to the 17th century have also embraced Shakespeare as readers and as theatre-goers. Professor Michael Dobson. After the Restoration, Shakespeare, for women readers, was one of the most attractive of um, English writers because he didn't flaunt Latin all the time. Uh, Aphra Ben, the first professional woman writer, uh, Restoration playwright, uh, wrote in the preface to one of her plays that, well, Shakespeare didn't get any more university education than women do, uh, and he's still better than Ben Jonson. I mean, she puts it more eloquently than that, but but uh, that's her argument, that Shakespeare as a vernacular writer, as somebody who writes just in English uh, and doesn't all depend on footnotes to Virgil, is something that women readers could really appreciate and enjoy. And this is commented on by a number of commentators, including Lewis Theobald, who says that Shakespeare is the favourite poet uh, with women readers. And we have copies of the folio that were owned by women readers in the 17th and 18th century, some with really nice notes in them. Uh, there's a copy in the Folger Shakespeare Library in DC in which one owner has written, you know, my friend offered me five pounds for this book and I wouldn't sell it. And come the 1730s, there's actually this club uh, a group of aristocratic women, supported by a number of women writers, um, declare themselves to be the Shakespeare Ladies Club. Alison Neal has written and performed a one-woman show about this club, a small group of aristocratic theatre patrons. One of their concerns, these women, was that the London theatres were uh, performing very lowbrow stuff at the time. We're talking the 1730s. Bawdy restoration comedies pantomimes, lots of variety acts, uh, rope dancing was a great thing, tumbling, and then bits of plays and lots of comedy dogs. So they went along to John Rich, the manager of the Theatre Royal Covent Garden, but he was unwilling to take a risk of putting on straight uh, Shakespeare plays because he didn't think, frankly, uh, people would come along and pay the money. So these ladies formed a sort of club and they got up subscriptions and they paid for Shakespeare plays to be performed. They petitioned theatre managements to put on more Shakespeare and they're involved in the campaign to put a statue of Shakespeare in Westminster Abbey. And in 1741, the monument was unveiled at Westminster Abbey, the monument that's there to this day. And by that time, which is only, uh, you know, two or three years since they really got started, one in four performances in London were Shakespeare plays. This example of women as supporters and appreciators of Shakespeare is taken up later. Um, at Garrick's Jubilee in 1769, Garrick's big speech says, yes, it was you ladies who put up a statue of Shakespeare. He said, it was you ladies who restored Shakespeare to the stage. You formed yourselves into a society to protect his fame and erected a monument to his and your own honour at Westminster Abbey. He didn't forget them. He thanked them publicly. And uh, a lot of them went on to become uh, another club known as the Blue Stockings. 
which uh, people have heard of nowadays. So Shakespeare's female fans are tremendously important uh, to the process by which he comes to be recognised as the great exemplar of the arts uh, in the English-speaking world. Tony Howard has investigated the story of an American political activist of the 19th century who also played Hamlet. Anna Dickinson in America. She was known as the Joan of Arc of the Unionist cause. As a young woman in her early 20s, she travelled America giving speeches proposing the abolition of slavery. And it was said that there were states in America that had been turned around against slavery just by listening to her. When the Civil War was over, uh, she carried on as a lecturer on those themes. For example, she argued that there should be uh, interracial marriage, which was extraordinarily shocking at the time. But also, in more general terms, um, she spoke and she wrote about women's rights and women's duties to be themselves. And she played Hamlet on stage in New York in 1882. Her Hamlet wasn't so much a performance as a recitation, but in a political sense. Um, because everything that she represented stood for the fact that women could be Hamlet, could break the mold. As an example of the way that she thought in terms of Hamlet, Hamlet says at one point, I do not know why yet I live to say these things to do. Um, Anna Dickinson wrote, women must look at themselves and say, I know what I want to do and have the will to do it. So she was a very powerful figure. However, Hamlet was destroyed by the press. Um, she never acted again. Um, she withdrew from public life and her family had her, uh, had, had her put away in an asylum. She took them to the courts and was found not guilty of being insane. This is an example of a character who saw Hamlet as a figure she could use. Shakespeare is intellectual currency and political currency. What really art should be doing is what female Hamlets have always done, which is to shake up the kaleidoscope so you see things differently. The women who played Hamlet in the 19th century had an extremely important legacy. They were a powerful influence on the suffragists and suffragettes, the campaigners and activists who fought for the right of women to vote. Dr Sophie Duncan. I think it's important to remember that in the Victorian era, although there was a queen on the throne, she was very rarely heard from in the second part of her reign. And so the only women who were allowed to get up in public and speak were actresses. And for a lot of suffragists, if you read their memoirs, they were really inspired by actresses as role models. Some actresses gave elocution lessons and helped train political women for public speaking. And there's huge reciprocal admiration between many actresses who become involved in something called the Actresses Franchise League and the better known activists. And it makes sense really, because actresses were the most visible working women in the Victorian period. And I think for a lot of suffragettes, actresses, successful actresses, represented the kind of political, creative, personal freedom that they wanted. There's a real double-sidedness, a real ambivalence to the way that the suffragettes write about and engage with Hamlet. On the one hand, there's huge recognition of his 
abusiveness and unkindness. There is this realization that he is a swine to the women in his life. At the same time, there's a, a sense in suffrage literature of identifying with Hamlet, this idea of the time being out of joint, this sense of Hamlet as an isolated figure surrounded by corruption who has to fight what feels like a very lonely and difficult battle against the circumstances in which he finds himself. There is this desire to explore Hamlet, to identify with Hamlet and to be Hamlet. Um, I think that's true for anybody interested in theatre, you know, regardless of your gender. When suffragists rewrite the speech, it tends to be a far more definite and positive outcome to take up arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. So there's a lovely prologue written for a 1911 Actresses Franchise League matinee, written by a male suffragist called Israel Zangville. But Hamlet was so hard soliloquizing, he had no ear for feminine advising. Ah, if instead of suicide suggestion, to vote or not to vote had been the question. In 1914, um, there's a, an, an American suffrage worker called Mabel Rose Reese. She's from Brooklyn. And she rewrites the speeches to be or not to be a suffragist. That is the question. And the speech ends and all of us demand the vote. So you get lots of reworkings, which are really fascinating. In 1909, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies put to be or not to be on a banner and invaded the annual celebration of Shakespeare's birthday in Stratford-on-Avon. We know that suffrage groups turned up in Stratford as a kind of huge propaganda opportunity. When people arrived in Stratford to see plays, they were also confronted with suffrage activism. It was a yellow and black banner with to be or not to be written on. Yellow and black um, are the colours of the Shakespeare family crest. So when the suffragettes carried this banner, they were kind of writing themselves into Shakespeare history. I wouldn't want to shy away from the idea of the speech having to do with suicide in application to the suffragettes because... We are moving towards the death of Emily Wilding Davidson. I think whether or not she intended to die that day in 1913 at the Derby, so she throws herself or is crushed under a horse and dies, I think whether that was intentional is an open question. But she was certainly very prepared to die for what she believed in. And I think it's important to remember how the speech goes on. You know, to take up arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing, end them and end her own life in the process. The story of women and Hamlet is mostly a hidden history. Many of their stories have been deliberately erased. What happens around the 1900s um, is theatre gets more organised. It becomes more um, a product that's put together by directors and producers, and they are men. And at the same time, the history of Shakespearean theatre starts getting written by academics in America and England, and they miss out the women, quite consciously. The history that people got until quite recently just saw them as, as freaks, and I use that word deliberately. There's a famous book that came out in the 50s in this country, Pictorial History um, of Hamlet by the Mitchisons, and they said that women playing Hamlet is the same category as dogs performing. For many female performers, if you're challenging the system, which says you can't do that because you're, by definition, you can't do that because you're a woman, then you're challenging a complex web of social expectations and customs. And Hamlet 
remains, as it has always been, a symbol of your ability to make things different, hopefully better. This podcast was produced during the coronavirus lockdown and the contributors all agreed to take part because they wanted to raise awareness for theatres and for actors in a time of crisis, of pandemic, of lockdowns and social distancing. If you want to help, theatres like The Globe have donation pages you can visit and there are special fundraisers set up during lockdown, details of which can be found on the podcast website. Finally, special thanks go to Emma Fielding and Simon Paisley Day, who recorded versions of the speech at home during lockdown. And thanks too to Chris Dyer, Paul Sem and Hannah Fiore for their invaluable help and support. Soft you now, the fair Ophelia. Nymph in thy orisons, be all my sins remembered.